When I um, have these rooms full of prospective students, I say, how many of you guys want to save the world? And everybody raises their hands, and I go, okay, that's great. That's a great place to start with. Let's, like, not kill that, because <laughs> that's what we're going to do. So imagine you're a college professor in the era of climate change, and it's your job to teach this brutal forecast to idealistic students who are otherwise ready to take on the challenge. So why? Why do we kill this very spirit that could potentially save the planet? Because we don't take students' emotional engagement with the material seriously enough. And that's my proposal today. How do you teach climate change without inducing so much eco-grief that your students are immobilized to the point where they're depressed, they're not showing up to class, they're going nihilist, and it's not just the students. So what is the professor doing during all of this? Well, she's dying with you, right? I mean, it's like the amount of emails, the amount of waking up at night, the existential um, hand-holding for every single student going through all of these processes individually started to be too much. This is Mike Dronkers, and you're listening to My Favorite Lecture, where we hear remarkable talks from Humboldt State educators, and they talk about whatever they want to talk about. And in this episode, environmental studies professor Dr. Sarah Jaquette Ray gives you a play-by-play for this emotional arc that she sees many of her students go through every semester. And she's actually working on a book about this, managing emotions in the classroom. And in this lecture, she pulls the curtain back a little bit to show what teachers go through to get these heavy lessons across. So let's set the stage a little bit. It is standing room only at the Plaza View Room in Arcata. There is going to be some PowerPoint in tonight's lecture, photos, links, maps. And you can visualize all that, or you can go check it out online. And since the lecture hasn't started yet, now would be a good time to open a browser tab and check out those resources there at khsu.org. And while you're doing that, here in the room, people are finding their seats, they're getting a drink, they're chit-chatting, and we learned something surprising about this environmental studies professor. I'm not an environmentalist. Go on. (laughs) Well, the things that people think of as kind of classic environmentalist behavior or qualities, I don't really have any of them. I don't ride a bike. I don't have a garden. I don't compost. The list goes on. Do you want me to keep continuing? Um, But I do a lot of other things, like the stuff I'm going to talk about tonight. And I argue with students, or I try to argue to students, that those particular kinds of behaviors are only one kind of way to be an environmentalist. But I think it's a provocative, fun thing to say that you're not an environmentalist and then challenge people to think about what they assume you mean by that. When you tell people that you're not an environmentalist, how do they take it? But it's a good question. Can you study the environment and can you care about environmental issues and not be an environmentalist? I think the answer is yes. Um, there are also people who think that the only way to be an environmentalist are in these very narrow, kind of no-impact man strategies. And as much as I think that those are really important and valuable, and I commend anybody who's doing that, that is just a very narrow uh, view of what the picture is. What is the path that led to tonight's talk? The path that led to tonight's talk was when I first came here in 2013 to lead the Environmental Studies Bachelor's of Arts program. I was really overwhelmed by students' existential crisis that they would have with the material I was teaching, and it started to consume a lot of my time. And so I started to think of it as a research project and also a project that would really help me and the students to figure out how to cope with all that. 
in the classroom. And the thing that really is quite amazing is that it's always shocking to me to look at students who are feeling this way in their isolation because I get to see 30, 40, 50 students every single semester who really just buoy me up with the hope. And so if I know that the world is about to encounter all of these young people, I can actually really survive all that. What's one thing that you hope people take away from tonight? That there are uh, tools to really imagine and desire a beautiful future. Break a leg. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to my favorite lecture. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it very much. Tonight's lecturer works on environmental justice theory, intersections of identity, power, and place in the environmental humanities. She has published on disability, immigration, motherhood, transnational environmental justice, and teaching environmental justice literature. Please put your hands together for Dr. Sarah Jaquette Ray. for being here. I'm so nervous. Oh my gosh. Look at all your faces. Thanks, Mike Drunkers, for setting this up. And because of my nervousness, you can imagine how long I've been saying no for this. So um, it's time. I'm going on a sabbatical next year so I can, I can finally feel relaxed enough to do this. I also want to thank a lot of people whose ideas and um, scholarship have really helped shape a lot of my thinking around these topics. Uh, a woman named Heidi Huntner, Janet Fiscio. I'm sort of shouting out to these people so you'll look them up a woman named Laura Schmidt who's doing um, a work called Good Grief, using Al-Anon principles to think about climate grief. She is hugely popular and lots of people are attending and she's getting a lot of traction. And also I want to thank environmental studies faculty have been just extremely supportive so I want to make sure I, I recognize that. And of course, the students. Yeah! <laughs> I'm not going to make it through today, I'm telling you. Later I start talking about my children and it really becomes waterworks. Well, all the students have really shaped what I'm thinking about and inspired me to think in these in terms, and it's heavy emotional stuff, <laughs> so that's why, I'm, why it's going to be hard for me to talk about this stuff, too. So a bit about me. Um, I came to environmental studies um, in 2013, as I mentioned. What was happening over the course of the first few years of, of teaching and leading the program is, of course, you can imagine I was this eager, ambitious young person that was so excited to get the job. Um, I was just elated, and I wanted to make sure I was doing a good job and told myself that to do a good job at this job was to make sure that the students were happy, the students liked me, the students were progressing well through the program. They were going to be graduating. That's a big one for HSU, given the abominable <laughs> retention and graduation rates. Um, and that, you know, that they were going to go off and do the things that ostensibly we were promoting in our materials that they were going to go and do, which is become leaders of the climate movement in the 21st century, leaders, blah, blah, citizens, blah, 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 right? So I was like, okay, I can do it. I can do it. In order to get from A to B, it was a lot more difficult than um, I was expecting, and I, and I ended up sort of carrying all of that existential, I felt like I had to get everybody through all of their existential crises with the material in order to get to that graduation and walk across the stage thing, right? So um, that's where the ideas about thinking seriously about emotions and how emotions take on their own kind of life in a classroom setting when you're talking about this kind of difficult material became a real interest of mine. I, I was sort of a self-preserving interest. It wasn't just kind of a curiosity interest. I really had to do that and really had to think about that in order to preserve myself. And I, I can't say that I've successfully done that necessarily, um, I, but I am uh, really 
really grateful for the ways that I, the, some of these um, strategies that I hope to give you today have, in fact, actually helped along the way. So I'm hoping that they will also help some of you. Okay. Uh, if I could give this talk in a three-part act, it would go like this. Young people come to college idealistic, energetic, and full of hope. They take classes and learn how screwed up the world is. They become fatalist in the face of there being no easy solutions and immobilized by their growing awareness of their pervasive complicity in all the problems. That could make anybody not want to come to class, much less graduate or take on the world Al Gore style, right? So this is a story about how what many are calling the climate generation, which are maybe we could roughly estimate late millennials and now iGen. Have you heard of the iGen? They're coming. Young people. I know. They're here. Yeah, they're here. I thought they were next year. I thought it was supposed to be next year. We're all prepared for them next year, okay? Young people have been coming through college for the past eight years or so. Um, and into the foreseeable future. So um, these insights gathered from this generation about how it is that we're supposed to teach them and what they're teaching us um, may go on for some time. Let's hope they go on for some time. Um, so it's about how these students come to, come to college like this, really idealistic, jumping up into the sunset, happy, ready to contribute and save the world. In fact, when I um, have these rooms full of prospective students, I say, how many of you guys want to save the world? And everybody raises their hands, and I go, okay, that's great. That's a great place to start with. Let's, like, not kill that. Because <laughs> that's what we're going to do. <laughs> and then we kill that idealism in them. Yes. We turn them into sad, hopeless, you know who you are, powerless students. <laughs> who can barely come to class, much less graduate and save the world that we want them to save. So one student who's in this room, Nick Graham. Nick Graham, where are you? Where did Nick go? He's right here. Oh, there he is. There he is. Um, made this Valentine's Day card for me last year on behalf of the 295 class I teach called Power, Privilege, and the Environment. And that pretty much sums up how I think students feel when they're in the classes. Yeah, so there it goes. Just pull everything all out of your body and just, yeah. Hmm? That's class over. Yeah, well, you wouldn't guess from that. Um, another student put the sort of emotional journey of being an environmental studies major this way. My journey in the program has been full of self-battles with anger, hope, times where I'm motivated to enact change, and times of hopeless, helplessness. But I'm not alone in my feelings. This is a common trend throughout the major, not only for students, but for faculty as well. Dealing with students' emotional states is critical in the ENST major. There is no way to effectively deal with these issues if we disconnect from our emotions. These are real-world issues that trigger real-world emotions. If we neglect our emotions, we're lying to ourselves about the magnitude and effects on the world around us. So this is literally written about two weeks ago. So this is, you know, we're, we're like hot off the press here. Okay. So why? Why do we kill this very spirit that could potentially save the planet? Right? Because we don't take students' emotional engagement with the material seriously enough. And that's my proposal today. So let's get a sense of how this journey goes. And I'm about to show you two general stories of how students come to the environmental studies major. And this is a lot of college students. So I, I'm not just talking about environmental studies. I'm I, that's my own perspective, but you can imagine a lot of students come to a lot of majors in these ways. 
Um, and this is my HSU perspective too. And I, I want to be very careful when I talk about the emotional journey of going through the environmental studies program, that I am not oversimplifying or making stereotypes out of students. However, I do want to give us some kind of picture of what's going on and how some of the tensions might arise because of the different types of experiences that students bring into the classroom. Okay, so student A, we have path A. Okay, I'm not giving them a name, I'm sorry. I'm gonna make it something very boring, path A, because I don't want to attach this to any particular identity. To HSU's environmental studies program, it goes like this, right? Some of you in this room may feel like this resonates with your experience. Um, maybe when you were a child, you were exposed to a lot of um, environmentally themed programming. I didn't get environmentally themed programming, but you got environmentally themed programming. Good for you. Disney was rocking your world, teaching you about the circle of life. Awesome. You were like animals. They, I love them. They're great. Circle of life. Right? Okay. You grew up a little bit and realized that David Attenborough was really your idol and that um, you wanted to kiss the turtles too. And so maybe you should think about how you might go to college and like become like a, maybe a zoologist or a biologist, right? So you're starting to think about that. You're thinking, you're loving nature. You're loving on some nature. Oh, you're in California, probably. So you probably heard about these guys, John Muir and Teddy Roosevelt, and you're probably thinking, the Sierras, I love going there. My dad takes me there camping, and I go, I get to escape from the concrete jungle of LA and go there, and I get to do that stuff. And, and these people in history did this great thing for us by making sure we had these things called the National Park System and this awesome thing called wilderness, and you're, you're, you're feeling the love. Then Al Gore happens to you. <laughs> You, how many of you guys have seen An Inconvenient Truth? See what I'm saying? So Al Gore is a significant turning point for many environmental studies majors, and maybe even for you, and, and certainly probably for me. I was, it was actually in the theaters for me when I saw it. So Al Gore you know, happened, and then all of a sudden it got real, right? It's, it's serious business. I'm, I'm ready to take this on. I'm going to save the world by getting out of this town, because that's where nature ain't, and I'm going to go over here. <laughs> Far, far away, but still in California. <laughs> and, and I'm going to study maybe environmental science or wildlife because everybody has told me all along that that's the only way to do this kind of work. So that's path A. Let's go to path B. Path B is sort of similar, has some similarities. The emotional intensity of this path is equally as fraught. This person is also from that town that you just saw a picture of. This is, by the way, um, a map of the EPA's, uh, a map of environmental toxins in L.A. And maybe this person, Path B student, has grown up thinking about, in a conscious way, their kind of embodied experience in their neighborhood and have been thinking about the kind of political structures that attenuate maybe something like their health or access to different types of environmental benefits. And then because California is so awesome... I'm sure everybody in California gets some recycling in their schools when they're growing up. But interestingly enough, what's happening at this point in this, in this path is probably that these two things are not connected yet, right? The, nobody's giving the, the student, this young person, a narrative that says, this thing that you're doing in your schools and this thing that this the sort of geography of where you come from don't have any kind of structural connection. So that's, the, that's where we're going when we get to college, right? Why are we recycling and why are you growing up in this neighborhood? Maybe their parents or their grandparents were actively involved in some kind of labor rights organizing or some kind of social justice organizing in some way. 
And instead of John Muir and Roosevelt, perhaps this person started to think about environmental concerns through different icons, through different cultural figures. And no doubt, somewhere along the way, Path B <laughs> will have encountered an inconvenient truth. And we know probably a similar kind of a story, right? I think it's about half of our students at HSU are first-generation students. And so coming to college at Humboldt State um, far away from home is actually really um, an amazing feat. So path A versus path B. Why did I give you these two paths? Again, they are an amalgamation of, of many different students, and they certainly don't capture all student experience in the program. I don't want to suggest that at all. But what I want to suggest is a, a picture of the tension that happens when these students come together in the classroom around questions of environmental issues and environmental justice. To sum it up, path A, in my view, is a student who comes to care about social justice through their love of nature. So in the classes, they may have come thinking that they're going to be the next Jane Goodall, but in fact, they realize that there's not, not really any way to do what Jane Goodall does without um, leveraging a whole lot of privilege. And that, that creates all kinds of um, angst in that student. And so they come to start thinking about social justice concerns and the interconnections between their love of nature and social justice. Path B, you know, we could think of that as kind of the other way around. Right? That they, have, they were raised in a situation that were fairly politicized around social justice questions, already fairly politicized around questions of equity, um, maybe uh, their, their, sense of, um, their own sense of proximity to environmental racism, but they may have not gotten those necessarily those political terms yet. They have come to care, whether that's before college or during college, to really think about environmental issues as deeply embedded in these questions of social justice, and they're absolutely inseparable to these students. So you can see, you can begin to see how um, students who are coming to, the way that students actually come, even before they step foot on HSU, creates the sort of a set of emotional challenges that manifest in the classroom when we have discussions around what is it that um, we have to, what we're going to do to solve all these problems. Right? So we have um, students who have different perspectives on what the problem even is. Okay, so why did I do that? Uh, why did I give you that? I wanted to let you know that um, I wanted to give you stories about students, but I didn't want to make them feel canned, and I wanted to express to you that there is a picture here of how it is that students come that's very important before they even, um, before they even take classes. So what happens once these, once these students go to college? A whole new journey begins for these students. So like I mentioned, they may declare something like wildlife. Ooh, I'm sipping on my thing. They may declare wildlife or environmental science as their degree. And in the course of that, they realize that um, they don't really necessarily want to be a scientist. <clears throat> and with some really miraculous advising, which I give my hat to those advisors who finally figured out what environmental studies is. <laughs> it's been a long, hard road. Um, they finally got the picture about how to advise those poor students to be able to continue to pursue their love of environmental issues, but not from a science perspective. And so they come to environmental studies, to the Bachelor's of Arts degree in a completely different college, and um, try to work through some of these issues. So they may have been given a hard time or have been dismissed by their family and friends as uh, maybe having not uh, being kind of a cop-out on the science, or they, and they come into classes oftentimes with, with what I call a science inferiority complex. But I assure you that the classes are as hard as the sciences. They're just emotionally hard. <laughs> okay, so let me explain what I mean by that. 
in our classes, um, for beginning from uh, the 100 level, the 200 level, the 300 level, and 400 level, we have four classes in the Environmental Studies program, and I have this wonderful opportunity to see students come in at the 100 level and then what happens to them by the end. So it's like this great assessment tool, just seeing how this happens. And it's wonderful to put the 400 level students with the 100 level students and have them teach each other, so this is not all me. Um, that's the best part of, that's really the great part uh, that has given me this perspective. Um, so what happens in all these classes? Well, they're classes in, that I teach, but also throughout the entire curriculum of envir the environmental studies degree. They take classes in um, politics. They take classes in economics. They take classes in English, art, all kinds of um, other programs. And they get some of their very cherished beliefs challenged. And, and like, I, like I like to say, this is where you get this rug pulled out from under you. There's like many rugs that get kind of pulled out from these students. And um, it was when I was starting to realize with the emotional fallout of that in my first couple of years that I was going to have to start anticipating that if we pulled this rug out of them in this content in class, we could darn well better ex expect to see this emotional response and it might kind of derail our ability to keep moving. So what are some of those cherished beliefs? I think I have five of them here. Okay. So a lesson that they learned from this cherished belief is that environmental problems are much worse than they previously thought. So they might have gotten a little bit of Al Gore, but they still thought they could solve all the problems because Al Gore leaves you at the end with all that awesome, hopeful stuff. Okay, I'm going to go do that stuff, and then I'll be fine. And they come into the classroom, and they realize that actually the scale of the problems and the, how long it's been going on in all their science classes and in their politics classes, the interconnections between all of these things, it is just so big. And how does that make students feel? Really small, right? So the emotional effect of learning that content is absolute deflation, right? Total incompetence, total incapacity to do anything. What's the other lesson? Environmental problems are much more complicated than they previously thought. I cannot just go be at David Attenborough and save the turtle and everything will be fine, right? The turtle is connected to the recycling, which is connected to that neighborhood, which is connected to the law that just got passed and that was just connected to what's happening to my auntie. And what, I mean, the, the list goes on, right? So that sense of the, the, the skills that they are acquiring in these classes to see the interconnections between a lot of different problems, they may have thought that asthma had nothing to do with police brutality or Black Lives Matter, but all of a sudden, connection, right? And so these connections between all of these things um, make the problem seem really intractable, unsolvable, right? I cannot just go into my corner and work on this one species. I can't just go over here and fix this one problem. They're all connected and tied together. This is, a, this is really a hard one. <laughs> individual, individual actions like riding your bike are not enough. That insight is really difficult, and I know I'm probably going to get some questions about that one after this. <laughs> I am not here to tell you you're a good environmentalist. But this particular one is really foundational because students by this point, you saw the paths that they took, they think that by the time they get to college, they are righteous. They are at HSU and they are making their own beauty products and, you know, out of hemp or something. And, and I'm not, I mean, like, I love it. But they start to learn in these classes, John Meyer's class in particular, hey, you know, the politics of individual sacrifice isn't going to cut it. And as much as I think that that stuff is really important, and I do. And I think collectively, if everybody did that stuff, it sure would work. But the research is showing that people are doing that stuff less and less and less. Right? So what are you going to do? If, in fact, the cumulative effort is not building up to some critical mass of awesomeness, 
does that mean you stop riding your bike? No, of course not. You have to come up with your own reasons to do it, but self-righteousness is not a good byproduct, right? <laughs> so Michael Maniates, who um, has written a fabulous essay that I have students read in the 100-level class, writes about this. He says, social change does not happen through mass uncoordinated shifts in lifestyles or consumption choices. The small and easy approach of making green lifestyle choices is attractive, plausible, and dead wrong. This is because even if, um, even if most Americans did suddenly green their lifestyles, underlying processes of production and disposable that are largely insulated from personal consumption decisions would still drive the planetary ecosystem towards collapse, albeit a bit more slowly. This is kind of depressing. <laughs> yeah, you're thinking, oh my god, I rode my bike here, and now it didn't even matter. <laughs> okay, all right, we can, what can, you can digest that, and you can take me up with this later, but that insight is, is, is harsh on students. Another one, that the systems and the scientists that they entrusted to solve the problems are not likely to solve them. So all those adults in the room that you thought when you were growing up that had it all fi figured out, they don't have it figured out, and they're really, in fact, some of them, many of them, are really embroiled in the very politics that are causing the problems. So um, even we start to do a rigorous critique of science. We love science, but we do this critique of science, right, to let them know that the science is not just this um, you know, objective thing that comes out of nowhere and kind of operates outside of society. We want students to be aware that science operates within society and is attenuated by societal forces like capitalism. And, you know, therefore, science, we have to start to be, have some good scientific literacy, not reject science, but have some understanding about the con context that science comes in. And this kind of stuff of like losing faith in the, in the older generation to fix the problems and seeing everybody be bought out and sold out, myself included, is pretty heartbreaking. <laughs> it's in the foundation, right? I mean, it seeps through everything. So the, the, the second insight you're mentioning, the second insight and that last insight about the structures, that stuff is really daunting. If you say the flaws in the foundation, you kind of feel like, what is the point of even waking up tomorrow? Um, okay, so Manny Yates actually says that what ends up happening is that this leaves students with a sense of urgency around the problems. They got that from Al Gore. And also a sense of inability to address the problems. So that combination is kind of lethal. It leaves students feeling overwhelmed, um, overwhelmed with a sense of hopelessness and despair. So I didn't make this stuff up. People have been observing this happening with students in environmental studies and science classrooms longer than I have, right? And it was just like a relief, a lovely relief to find out somebody else is talking about this stuff. I, I thought I was the only one. Okay. So that is, those are the, um, some of the cherished beliefs that get dashed when students come to environmental studies. Um, students, this is um, similar to that individual action one. This one is really um, disturbing for students. Um, some students have ideas about nature and wilderness that, are, that they feel uh, should have not be corrupted by any kind of social influence, right? So for students who feel like nature is a refuge where they get to go to be where there is no social influences and no politics and no issues of power and inequality and all that kind of stuff, are really a little bit, like it's profoundly disturbing on a profound level, an existential level, to find out that that nature and that wilderness is actually um, something that society has created and that the creation of a lot of these national parks and wilderness spaces happen at the cost of a lot of indigenous people who are expelled from these places to make beautiful nature that uh, Ansel Adams would then photograph. So these kinds of, these kinds of insights are just profoundly disturbing and, all, and, and many students even sort of wonder why are they even in environmental studies. If nature doesn't exist the way I thought it existed, 
if there's nothing I can do about it, forget it, right? So talk about um, graduation and retention problems. Man. Alternatively, in some cases, students will also see their own experiences in some of the case studies that we're reading about um, in class. And that brings also some emotional responses of feeling like uh, perhaps that they're all of a sudden they're under the microscope or they are offended. Who are these academics to be making a case study out of my family and my experience? And it becomes a really awkward but also maybe empowering um, transformation that happens when you turn your life experience into political terms and a, a sense of politicized identity. So that is also happening in classrooms, right? So you can imagine with all of these sort of path A and path B students that this is a, this is a charged space, the classroom. Add to this for um, many students... Um, feel a sense of uh, pervasive complicity in the problems. And so they start to learn about things like commodity chains and um, forms of uh, production and consumption, and they, they simply cannot figure out how to get out of that. They realize that their very presence in this land is built on various forms of privilege. They realize that perhaps even the most conserving, sparse student is still going to be two times the global average of um, ecological footprint or carbon emissions just by virtue of being an American. We are contributing to global catastrophe in a way that there's just no way out of. So the sense of complicity in the power structures, the sense of complicity in the problems is really daunting for students. So now I've left you in that state of depression. And at the end of a class, what usually happens, the way most syllabi are designed is that professor would then maybe give you one article by Rebecca Solnit on hope and then say goodbye, have a great summer. But it's kind of like not really going to do much to get these students um, to come back to class or to do the things they came to college to do. So there you see it, the killed spirit. Let's be heavy for a minute. So what is the professor doing during all of this? <laughs> well, she's dying with you, right? I mean, it's like the amount of emails, the amount of waking up at night, the existential um, hand-holding for every single student going through all of these processes individually started to be too much, right? So what did I do? I started to think that maybe it would be a good thing to study this and to fix this. <laughs> so that's what I'm trying to do, and I've done some research on this already, and I'll share some of that with you, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping to actually write the whole book on it next year while I'm on sabbatical, which is really exciting. So what did I do? A friend of mine who's an English professor, the woman I mentioned, Jen Ladino, earlier, said to me, have you ever heard of environmental affect theory? I said, what? Uh, and so she explained to me environmental affect theory. She basically said, environmental affect theorists may have something to help, may be able to help you with your problems. And I said, okay, you know, explain this a little bit more. And she said, well, environmental affect theorists are really asking questions like, what kinds of emotional states or affects do people need to have to feel in order to do stuff, right? To be moved to action. And it turns out no surprise at all, that guilt and despair and negative news do not inspire students to action or any of the other things you might want from them. Uh, it creates apathy. It creates nihilism. And um, <clears throat> there's a lot of research that shows that this is actually not, not an effective tool. However, people are still taking a, a leaf out of Al Gore's book and still making these environmental documentaries the very same way, right? And still designing classes the very same way. So we assume, if our syllabi are stories, we assume that students are coming in unconverted and that our job is to fill them with a bunch of content about how terrible the world is and that that's our, our job is done. 
right? And then just walk away. So imagine, so an example of an environmental affect. If you think about how Al Gore did that, in the end, he gave us some lists of things we could do, like changing light bulbs and that sort of thing, right? Um, the incommensurateness of the action with the problem leaves a kind of cognitive dissonance, right? And think instead, perhaps, and you can imagine the way you feel at the end is that despair I just left you sitting with for a minute, right? If you think instead of an alternative, that is the environmental affect of despair. That is the environmental affect of feeling ineffectual, right? That is the environmental affect of powerlessness. If you think instead of a different exercise I tried with students last semester for the first time, of, and several of those students are in this classroom, and you'll know what I'm talking about, I mean, in this room. Um, the exercise was a change vision action workshop where I actually tried very hard to step out of the um, content delivery mode and be just a facilitator of a change vision action workshop. And this action, the change vision action workshop asked students to actually kind of create their own lists of what they needed to do to make the world the, the way they wanted to see it. And we developed a personal action plan out of that. And these students are now doing a lot of those things, which is really awesome. So if you wonder how I keep getting up in the morning, it's that, right? Um, so the change vision action plan, uh, the change vision, change action vision, whatever it's called. Um, I asked the students, and it was really, I, this, this had happened to me, and so I was in a workshop like this, and so I thought this would be straightforward with students. I asked students to um, do a visualization exercise. I won't make you guys do it. Um, where I asked them to think about uh, what would it feel like to thrive in a climate change future. They couldn't do it. <laughs> and you're here and you know you couldn't do it. Um, and it was sort of horror, shocking, right? Like, you can't imagine a future is what it came down to. So they thwarted the whole thing. I was expecting to put all of these things on there and then create this plan for, with them to figure out how to achieve that, right? But it kind of got messed up. Um, so... They could, the answer to that problem was that they couldn't actually envision a future, and that created its own level of heartbreak. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. That is a di like imagining a future that you desire is a very different affect than um, what you feel at the end of Al Gore, right? So that's why environmental affect theory is really helpful. So how does this help me negotiate what I'm doing in my class in my classrooms? Oh, I meant to say this. Okay, I'll tell you about this in a minute. How did I skip that? I'm sorry about those guys. Okay. I'm going to skip over this. I'm sorry. This is, I will, I will focus on this. So this is, um, you may have heard of Stages of Grief. You may have heard of The Hero's Journey, Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey. You may have heard of lots of different um, archetypes or thinking about um, uh, ways to anticipate how it is that when people are going through particular experiences in their lives that they might go through certain emotional stages. And so it was kind of um, students, including Drew Andrew and some other students, we had a lot of fun coming up with thinking about what the stages are of the environmental stage journey. And um, Sam Weeks, a wonderful student, um, said, she said, I'm in the baking cookies stage. <laughs> I thought, oh, yeah, that's the stage. I'm putting that in there. <laughs> I think it's after nihilism and before hope. I'm not sure. But, you know, you might keep coming back to it at every stage. It's possible. <laughs> Um, I don't like for students and us to dwell on hope. I think hope is actually an excuse to not to do work, but we can talk about that later. And so I think actually hope, hope leaves students feeling still empty, right? Like if somebody else is going to fix it later. Yeah. Um, and so efficacy is a, perhaps a better affect to move to from hope. Efficacy, in simple terms, is basically the, the feeling of power of actually being able to contribute in some way. Um, that relies on students starting to really think critically about what it looks like to do something in the world. 
And so students have had this idea, many students have this idea that um, a, a, a positive action in the world will look like the overthrowing of capitalism. Well, good luck with that, right? <laughs> you are single-handedly not going to do that, right? So what does an action look like to you? And so we have to spend a lot of time thinking about that. And then combined with an affective dimension or an emotional dimension of realizing that you have some um, affective tools to seek out and cultivate um, positive feelings like joy, uh, pleasure, desire, um, that ends up with the efficacy part kind of turning into something like resilience, we hope, right? So this journey is not monolithic. It could go in all different kinds of directions. In fact, a student recently said, Deconstructing harmful ideologies, ideologies and particularly white male privilege is an absolute requirement for white people in environmental studies looking to enact change in the world. But what about those of us coming into the program already having done much of that work and, are, and or are not white-bodied? How can we utilize everyone's ideas um, to, so that we can all, can all can grow? So this kind of insight, this kind of feedback makes me think maybe it's something more like this. You know, I don't know. That trajectory has a very particular set of um, positionality or background associated with it. Maybe we have something more like this. Was maybe still baking cookies in there, um, right? And but when you when you realize that these kinds of emotions, the sort of punchline here is that when you realize that these emotions are all happening, whether you want them to or not. Oh, oh, reading them. Thank you, thank you. Um, idealism, frustration with others' emotions. Efficacy still, validation, solidarity, and alienation. Some of these might feel like contradictory, right? But these are the kinds of emotions that um, many students are having in the classroom too, right? So they're having them whether or not you intend them to or not. And learning to anticipate them in some way um, allows, I think, instructors and people who are working with the climate generation to um, anticipate them, build them into their syllabi, and actually come up with, with the students what better, more desirable affective outcomes might be, not just um, content outcomes. So, um, three key principles that, um, I, that helped me navigate this with students in the classroom could be considered getting, the first one being getting comfortable with negative affects or negative emotions. And I am not comfortable with negative affects. Ask any of my students. I don't like conflict or sadness or anything like that. But it's taken me a long time to, to try to figure out how to embrace that. And certainly, um, creating space for groping through that stuff together is useful. Um, this has been really key for me preserving myself, structuralizing community among the students. And um, this has been, in order for students to actually kind of go through some of these uh, stages together, they don't need me helping them through it. This is not helping them. The efficaciousness that I want them to have is much better obtained when they figure out um, for themselves what they need to do to feel better about this stuff. And also being trans transparent about the emotional purposes of our assignments and our curriculum. So we may have a curriculum that we think this is really important to, build, to teach these students this content, but the content is going to have an emotional effect. If you can anticipate that, you may actually be able to build a more effective curriculum. So I want to tell you, I want to geek out for a moment and talk a little bit about some of the research that I'm drawing on to help me um, grapple with this stuff um, and draw on what other people are doing. The, the field of affective neuroscience and pedagogy, um, in particular I'm thinking about this book here, um, The Spark of Learning, Energizing the College Classroom with the Science of Emotion, is telling us that it, it turns out all the science of what's happening in the brain, which is not my field of area of expertise, but that stuff actually affects whether or not students retain and learn information, right? So it's just a sort of a fact. Um, child development experts will tell you this with young children, that social-emotional learning is essential to any kind of um, academic learning, right? It's the same kind of concept. 
This is also true for inclusive pedagogy. So inclusive pedagogy, um, like the works by Bell Hooks, Teaching to Transgress, Education as a Practice of Freedom, is just one example of um, folks who are thinking about how it is that emotion in the classroom is really central to teaching in a way that's really accessible and appealing and relevant and, maintain, and retain students who may be coming from underrepresented communities. So at HSU, we have the term we use is underrepresented minority, which I don't like, but there it is. So Bell Hooks is a great example of the kind of argument to say emotion is a really important. We have to make the personal political. We have to make content relevant to students. Um, social movement theory and history is another really great field that I'm drawing on. And one of the affective um, uh, results of reading this kind of work is seeing that lots of people are doing this stuff all over the place, and they've been doing it for a long time. And so we're learning from our elders here. We're learning from other memoirs and biographies and um, stories of how, how people have um, cultivated resilience in the face of crisis in other times. And um, the very important value, um, which I take from Adrienne Brown's Emergent Strategy, where she um, basically says, small is all. And I love that um, insight. So that's one of her insights. But what is the emotional um, response to this kind of material that we want students to get? A sense of being belonging in, in a larger community of people that they don't even necessarily know who are really working this, towards this stuff. So they're not just isolated against the tidal wave themselves, which is what the myth of American individualism would like to have them think. They are actually part of a larger group of people who are doing this work. And eco-psychology, which some of you may be familiar with, um, is another area that I'm drawing on I never thought I would be caring about or interested in. Um, but for example, Glenn Albrecht came with, um, has, um, people are starting to put names around theories um, about the emotional responses to climate change. So solastalgia is an example of that. Um, solastalgia describes a form of psychic or existential distress caused by environmental change. Um, and um, these different texts uh, ecological and social healing, multicultural women's voices, and emotional resiliency in the era of climate change, a clinician's guide, have been really helpful for helping figure out, okay, how am I going to do this in the classroom? So I try to take these things and apply it in the classroom. And then my favorite, because I come from a cultural studies background, my PhD is um, in environmental studies and also English, so all of these sort of analyses of the political and the cultural text that we all consume every day, whether that's news or whatever, um, has an emotional effect on us. Even Mike Dronkers will tell you that he is an expert in negative news bias, and that has an emotional effect on people. The emotional effect is studied to be apathy and nihilism. So with climate texts, with texts about climate, like uh, An Inconvenient Truth, a great text to, to study, what, is it some, what are some of these affects doing to us? And it turns out Kari Marie Norgard's book, Living in Denial, I really like to use because she talks about how it is that um, the information deficit model is really not true. It's not that people need more information to do environmental things. They need emotional uh, relationships with the causes. So if it's so obvious that in centering emotion and having some sort of emotional approach to thinking about content in the classroom, why aren't people doing it? There are four reasons, I think. I think there are four. One is this pretense towards neutrality. Um, especially in the sciences, people feel like if they start to bring emotion into things, they will betray their neutrality and no longer be credible. Another one is related is this notion of dualisms that comes out of most Western education, that we are supposed to be in the classroom just in our heads, and what's happening in our hearts or the rest of our bodies needs to happen outside of the classroom. So that's what counseling and psychological services for. That's what your mama's for. That's what your roommate is for. That is not what's happening in the classroom. And it, you know, that's because it's messy, right? It takes a lot of time. And those things, a lot of people, rightfully so, don't, don't want to open that door. 
And then another uh, very important reason why people aren't doing it is because it is known, a well-known fact, it's, there's research out there on this, that um, fe uh, female faculty are much more likely to be sought out after for emotional care and the emotional labor of taking care of students. This is even more so for female faculty of color. In a campus where we have 47% of our students are underrepresented minority and we have only 7% female faculty of color, you can imagine that those 7% may think that opening the door to the emotional aspects of the content of the material is like an, an invitation to be, be taken care of. So some of these I really think are legitimate, and I respect the reason not to do that. And some of these I think people need to think and in, in, interrogate themselves a little bit more. And <clears throat> Yeah. So what's the solution? We can help the climate generation see and experience how these emotions um, affect their experiences of the material. So the strategies that don't require becoming a therapist or a spiritual guide or a mother are, one, go on a media diet, seek positive news. There are examples of this. Ask Mike Dronkers, he has it all. Because we just learned that the negative news creates a certain emotional effect. Incentivize self-care and activism. It's really easy to say to a student, you're an activist, go do that thing you have to do, bring it into the class, report back to the class, contribute to the class in some way too. Um, impact mapping. This is a sense of collective um, impact on the world. So, for example, and I'll, I'll, I'll skip this in the spirit of time, but when you go through a list of all the things that your students want to do in the world, you feel pretty darn good. I'll read a few of them, not all of them. Um, I want to research the need for mental health discussions and food security. I want to use my passion for theater and social advocacy to affect social change. I want to improve the relationship between the military and the environment. I want to reconcile being a devout Catholic and good environmentalist. I want to use writing to channel my love of the world to change it. So if you see 30 of those every day, you're going to feel pretty good. You feel good right now? My, I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> Hardcore research about emotions and social change theory. That requires sitting in your seat, talking and reading. That's sometimes really hard for students with that urgency thing going on. Confidence build through professionalization. So what does your resume have on it? How can we build it? So that you can actually feel like you're going into the world to contribute in a way that people want. Rethink student learning outcomes. So student learning outcomes are the things that ostensibly they have as they walk across the stage. They're things like um, they know how the carbon cycle works. They know whatever, some content. But if you actually think of affective outcomes as really necessary for what you want students to have when they walk across the stage, that may change what you're doing in your classes. So this is where I'm wrapping up. In conclusion, I will conclude now. Mike, yeah, I know you're there waiting for me to conclude. I am going to read this part. Yeah, right? Has anybody said these are awful, right? Okay, to conclude, I may not ride my bike to work and I confess to many lifestyle sins. I have two kids. They use straws. <laughs> and I, by the second one, I was not using reusable diapers anymore. And talk about those car seats. You have to dispose of them. You can't, you can't do anything with them. Maybe somebody knows what to do with them. I've even used, the, I used to drive them around to get them to sleep. Terrible, terrible. <laughs> I'm not going to barricade myself around a pipeline or sit in a tree for 30 days or monkey wrench my way to a post-carbon utopia. You guys can all do that. <laughs> um, but I do lie awake at night, like the rest of you and just like my students, wondering how within the limits of my own life I can leave the world a better place than I found it.
I've learned I can't carry the world's grief, much less the grief of my own children as they inherit an uncertain future. Look, I didn't cry. (laughs) Breathing. I can't change the 2016 election, though I really tried. (laughs) I kept waking up every morning being like, I can't change that for them. I can't. I can't uninvent the automobile. No one person can, but guess what? Collectively, we can. We should resist the self-erasing nihilism of environmentalism's command to leave no trace. I entice my students and ask each of you to resist misery. Take pleasure in knowing we are not impotent, doomed heroes facing the tidal wave alone. We are rhizome, expanding exponentially, leaving a hell of an impact. So I put it to you, just as I put it to my students, what would it take to desire rather than fear the future? What are the very next steps for you to thrive in a climate change world? Thank you. Nailed it. Nailed it. Uh, We're going to do... I'm not crying. You're crying. Um, (laughs) Thanks. Tell you, it's heavy stuff. Who's got a question? Put your hand up and and just leave it up for a second. All right. You ready? Sorry, not asking this question during your office hours. (laughs) And I'm feeling very stuck about approaching people with polarized Uh opinions. uh Every day is the struggle of how to express myself without like increasing the divide, mm-hmm. like making environmentalists look bad, or just like, Angela, I don't know. <laughs> Angela, I hear, I hear your question, and I, I, precisely because of that problem, especially after the election, I had to rethink, what is it that I'm asking students to get out of these classes? And I used to feel like I just had to convince them that so, environmental and social justice problems are interconnected, good luck, bye. Um, but then after the election, I realized actually the divisiveness that we have that, that has sort of led up to where we are now um, is something, it has more to do with communication. And so I developed an assignment in that class and I added it, put it in there that very spring, um, a, a deep dialogue and ethical listening assignment. And I can't say that I want to do that assignment. I, I know who I would talk to and what about, and I won't, I won't want to do it. But I'm making my students do it. Yeah. And Maricela Wexler, with her experience with Humboldt Mediation Services, I asked her to help me develop the assignment. So it was wonderful to have a student who felt the same way, who went off to do this kind of work in her own capstone because she felt very similarly, this is a communication problem, people, um, turn around and then help me develop the assignment in the class. And so the students in 295 this semester are literally doing that assignment right now. If you're, in this, you're here, you know you're doing it. So um, we need to do that, yes. We need to better figure out how to do that. I need to, and, and you're going to learn to, too. And we're all going to just keep practicing it eternally. But you're right, absolutely right, Angela. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Jessica. Um, so I'm a fourth grade teacher, and I know that you have young children. <clears throat> and what are your thoughts on addressing environmental concepts with younger children? Yeah. yeah. Oh, 
Um, so you probably have next generation science standards stuff going on, probably, yeah. I don't really know what the affective dimension of next generation curriculum is, so that would be my first step. What are you observing in your students that their emotional response to this material is? And then whatever you can possibly do to counterbalance that with like joy and wonder and curiosity and pleasure and desire to like balance all that stuff would just be just like, yeah, like resist misery in your curriculum. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know what's happening with fourth graders, but you don't want them traumatized by <laughs> The, yeah, like wait till college, and then, yeah, right. How do you actually, I heard you use the term Anthropocene. Yeah. How do you use that, define that, and how do you bring that back as terms of effect yeah. of our social yeah. inequalities and certain justice? Um, so the Anthropocene, really, really simply put, it's a, it's a debated term that has um, caused a lot of uh, scholarly debate, as you can imagine. Um, but it's a term that recognizes that humans have had such an impact on the planet that they've now, uh, we're actually now in a new epoch that is defined by humans' impact on the environment. And that that can be um, actually determined and detected in um, geological layers, right? Or geological time, geological evidence. And um, the problem with the Anthropocene concept, though, that a lot of environmental justice folks have is that it clumps all of human activity into kind of one category and doesn't quite address the great different ways that humans actually are contributing to um, climate change. So the term itself has uses, a great and wonderful uses, because it also raises questions like, what do the humanities and the arts and the social sciences have to contribute? Because the, science, the scientists are now really opening their door um, to more interdisciplinary collaboration because of that concept, which is really cool. Um, but those folks coming from those other fields also want to say things like, but what about the unevenness of um, how different types of humans, different communities of humans have actually contributed to that? So they don't want to have that kind of like monolithic sense of humanity doing this to the planet. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for the talk. Um, I had a question. So in your, in your talk tonight, too, like I heard you allude twice to the current political administration and like the despair you feel. And for those of you, us who teach, like I think that we felt that there seems like since 2016 there's been a certain downturn and it has had an effect on people, surely. But something I find myself trying to combat now is the fact that like I teach courses on police violence and things like this and, and they're very heavy topics. But I find that I almost feel that it's becoming a hindrance for us to focus so much on the current political administration mm -hmm. as if things were so good prior Trump, right? Mm -hmm, right. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly if we're talking about heavy issues like climate mm -hmm. change, perhaps mm -hmm. in the same way that we like kind of deify it, like say don't just make it about individual action, I think too much of us place too much on an administration, oh, yeah, right? As right. if Obama yeah. was going to fix this, right? Absolutely. So I, I don't know how, I mean, I'm I just kind of asking your, your response yeah. to this. Have you felt this too? Oh, or yes, how do you yes. wrestle with this? Like oh, it's I, real to talk about the current administration and I policy totally at the you. same time. If we make it all about that, we seem to be missing something. We're really not just important. missing things, but it can be even like unnecessarily more depressing. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> yes, that's a really important insight. And um, one of the things that I really love is, um, so as a result of that, I've, I teach Rebecca Solnit's One Magical Politician. Have you ever heard of this essay? Has anybody heard of this essay? I think I have so many classes, people in, the, in my classes. And in that um, essay, it's really short. It's, you can access it online. And, um, she basically says, 
don't be looking to any one magical politician to solve your problems, get to work. Um, so um, I, I suppose I really like what you're, at, what you're suggesting there, but for me, with that, what I hear you say is reframe it all about what you're going to do, what are students going to do. And so instead of looking at the, you know, what's happening in the White House, forget it. I mean, forget it. It's the same before, same after. Forget it. What are we going to do right here, right now? It's the same as before. I mean, in some ways, I came out, I came into the election thinking, this isn't going to, this really isn't changing anything. I was already feeling all of this stuff. Um, but but it, it raised a new level, it added new assignments like the deep dialogue and ethical listening. Like, it made me think that we needed to, there were some more assignments we could be doing to improve some of those problems. So there were some things that did change after the election for me, and certainly um, the focus back to the students um, was one of them. But I love what you had to say there. Yeah, totally right. <laughs> uh, hi. Uh, one thing that I've been grappling with and I can see in a lot of my fellow students is like the concept of momentum and um, being able to like break out of your consistent patterns of lifestyle in order to take the action that is necessary. And I was just wondering what particular just kind of guidance you have to continue that momentum like within us internally and collectively. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the burnout question is kind of where this is coming from because I was starting to feel the burnout myself. Um, so um, there are so many great essays by activists who talk about how they've dealt with burnout. And, and the sort of Adrienne Marie Brown approach of emergent strategy would be to say, seek pleasure, right? Because pleasure is what's going to keep us doing stuff, even like studies with animals show that, right? So, you know, pleasure is going to keep us doing the momentum. So the stuff's got to be pleasurable. You can't ask fourth graders to want to save the planet in the future if it looks, re it's just always been depressing since fourth grade. And, the, and John Meyer will tell you with, with his work with Michael Manates that the politics of sacrifice and the politics of guilt don't, don't help you with the momentum question. And so that's where resilience comes in, right? The concept of resilience, that you're going to be able to continue the work. Yeah. Please give it up one last time for Sarah Jaquette Ray. Thank you so much. And that is our show. If you want to follow up, we've got links and images posted in the show notes over at khsu.org. Pop over there and check it out. My favorite lecture is a collaboration between Humboldt State, KHSU, and Arcata Main Street, produced by Frank Whitlatch, Jeanette Todd, and myself. Our live sound engineer is Chris Pereira. Mark Jeffers is our recording engineer. Special thanks to Arcata Main Street, Humboldt State, Plaza Grill, Vicki Joyce, Kristen Gould, Hugh Dalton, Lost Coast Light and Sound, Dr. Sarah Jaquette Ray, and her students. Subscribe to the My Favorite Lecture podcast at iTunes. Leave us a review if you like what you heard. This is Mike Dronkers, and we will see you next time at My Favorite Lecture. My Favorite Lecture.